give you a big Labor Day surprise. Most people think if we all exercise the same and eat the same, we'd all look the same. And let me tell you why that's wrong. Your body is unique and your metabolism is unique. I'm Lacey Green, and I'm a super trainer at Body. That's B-O-D-I dot com. And you can't see me, but I don't look like your average personal trainer. I'm curvy, and I'm proud of it. So I created a program for beginners only on the Body app to show people like us how to get incredible results and be our version of happy and healthy. This isn't just workout videos. It's people like you and me. It's community. It's incredible trainers. It's easy to follow nutrition and mindset experts to help you reduce stress and just feel better. And you can get started with my new program called For Beginners Only. Now, here's the big surprise. If you go to body.com right now, that's B-O-D-I.com, not only can you get everything Body has to offer at 50% off with an annual membership, you'll also get an additional 20% off, but only during Labor Day weekend. Let's do this together. Go to body.com. That's body with an I.com. Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So let's get started. Hello, everyone. Hey. We have a special friend today, special guest. I love special friends. Special friends. We have Jonathan joining us again. It's good to be back. (laughs) I'm very excited. Everyone enjoyed his episode a couple weeks ago now. I mean, everyone. Mm -hmm. It was wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Kara. Sorry, I'm still getting over my sickness of the last few months. So if I start to cough, no. Every, no it's everyone one of the top, Jonathan top the most podcast. listened to. So really? Jonathan's was the yeah. top most listened to? Mm-hmm. Boom. It was long. It was long. What was it, what was it about? It was... uh, globalism. Kim oh. Kardashian and sovereignty. Yeah, but it really, it was more about like globalism and globalizations and the way that we Concepts imagine. Concepts of such. And that you, every title needs to include Kim Kardashian. Of course, from now on. Or yeah. it just, or Kardashian Jenner, one of them in general. Yeah. Well, pull the people in they're like what's this (laughs) but today we're doing something even more fun i think i think this comes up a lot it's certainly Um, hot it's a hot topic yes right now i we can say that and i you know the more i research it research it the more i keep seeing news articles discussing all these things Mm -hmm. so i feel like it's good that we are going to touch this third rail together yes so we're today we're talking about the legacy of the rosetta stone Mm mm-hmm and the whole repatriation debate. Mm -hmm. And so the anniversary of the decipherment of hieroglyphs was about 200 years ago now. Or the anniversary was a couple months ago for 200 years before for Champollion's decipherment of this language. And this script, script. This stirred up a renewed debate in the Rosetta Stone and whether or not it should be repatriated to Egypt. Zahiwas came out again and argued for it and other objects to be returned to Egypt and um, a petition was signed by a lot of Egyptological scholars also to call for its repatriation. And so today we're going to talk about this debate uh, and also look at, you know, why the Rosetta Stone is so important to the study mm-hmm, of Egyptology, mm-hmm. what's its history, all these things, um, and then look at this repatriation debate and see where we all stand on it. Um, and if you use academic buzzwords, I would say it's a it's a question of whether or not this is national patrimony yes. owned by the place or whether it's cultural heritage and owned by the world. And then how do you negotiate yes. those things? Those are the academic buzzwords that, yeah. that who you owns might come antiquity, across. right? Yeah. This is the, the debate. So first we'll do background on Rosetta Stone. 
get all or that out of the way. Or you will do background. Yes, I, <laughs> I did look into all of its history. I can do background on the Rosetta You can? Stone. Yeah. I'm really bad at remembering like these basics of Egyptology. It's like I take them out of my mind on purpose. The Ptolemies, the, you, you you can think of yes. the Ptolemies in a fun way because they're all sleeping with each other and then murdering each other. Yeah. So if you, if you focus on that. And all related to each other. Exactly. Yeah. But if you focus on that, that tends to stick in one's mind. I so. guess. Okay, so what is the Rosetta Stone then? Oh, so Jonathan, I'll put you on the spot. Okay, fine. We're so glad you're here. I'm so glad to be here. That's great. So I think actually one of the cool ways that we could think about the Rosetta Stone is actually it's a monument of resistance itself, mm-hmm. um, because essentially it represents uh, it's one of a series of trilingual decrees. So decrees that were that were written in Egyptian hieroglyphs, Demotic Egyptian, which is the Egyptian that would have been legible to most of the mm-hmm. the priests and the Egyptian population at the Indigenous time. So, Egyptians, exactly. dare we say. Yeah. yeah. Or a time of colonial Greek occupation. Mm-hmm. As it's said on the stone, demotic is the writing of the book. Mm. It's listed as. You have glyphs writing the words of the gods, demotic, the writing of the book, Greek, and the writing of the Greeks. Yes. So. Yeah. And so um, I don't think this is the earliest of the trilingual decrees that we have, mm-hmm. um, but uh, it's certainly the best known one. But what these, in my understanding of how these monuments originated, is that essentially as there began to be indigenous resistance to Ptolemaic rule. Um, and we, as we started to see the cracks in it, I think first under Ptolemy IV. Um, but then uh, with the, the start of Egyptian rebellions and then the prolonged rebellion that I think spanned the reign of Ptolemy IV and into Ptolemy V, um, the Ptolemies eventually started to say, hey, well, you know, we, we should probably... Talk appease, to them. Appease, talk to them, appease our, our local population that we're lording over, literally. Um, and uh, make sure that they're they're happy. And so essentially what they, they started doing is they started having these uh, priestly synods. Uh, <clears throat> don't remember how often, but um, whenever they'd have this, all the Egyptian priests would gather at one place and then they'd kind of make these religious decisions and they'd ask for favors. And then the king would be like, okay, yeah, so here's, we're now going to grant favors and we're going to make sure that it's, that these favors are stated in all the languages of the country. Mm-hmm. Which makes you realize that the Egyptian power base at the time was a religious a set of religious institutions mm-hmm. who owned most of the land and not that there wasn't private land holding in ptolemaic egypt but when there was most of it was greek occupiers who were owning that land mm-hmm. and when the it elites, was indigenous yeah. egyptian it was institutionally owned and the egyptians still very much to this day like to communicate through ideological speech never directly and this is a way of asking for something economic and political but doing so through a religious under a religious veil, mm-hmm. if you like. Do you agree with that? Is that a big I, I statement? I do. The, the one thing that I'll add to that, because um, again, I totally agree. The one thing I'd add is that there's, um, it's interesting because there's kind of multiple discourse communities in Ptolemaic Egypt that one person could be a part of, but in each discourse community, you present yourself differently. Mm-hmm. So there's like, if you're a Greek speaking audience, like the, 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 the decree will be presented to you in a very, very particular way. And there'll be very specific institutions that you could be, involved in and take advantage of even courts. Um, but if you're Egyptian or you choose to use your Egyptian name, if you are bilingual and can exist and move back and forth between these communities, you kind of have to pick a lane each time that you're yeah. interacting mm-hmm. with the government. Yeah, code shifting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I know you're getting to this, but can I ask Jonathan, because you, have, you probably read this in translation. Have you read the Rosetta Stone in I actually have never read the should, entire Rosetta Stone I read it in translation. You have? For this. But... But is each section each section is different? It's what it kind of the degree. same, but kind of yeah. different because they're speaking to different audiences that, and have just different like, agendas. As we know, things don't directly translate always. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, but I think the glyph and demotic are 
very same. similar. And but then the Greek is kind of... You know, it's Greek, so it's a lot longer-winded. Jordan, yeah. can I ask you a question? Yeah. How boring was it to read it in translation? It was really boring. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you read it in Chicago? No, no, I like read it online like, oh, when oh, I was oh, taking oh. notes for this. But no one's done a translation in class. No, I've no. never, it's like, funny. I like, never translated is, it. Let's just make that point. Let's yeah. put a little pin in that. It's too late. <laughs> that, that This is something that is the basis of the modern field of Egyptology, however you define that, and whether or not you think it's dying a quick death mm-hmm. or not. But we don't ever read it in class. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's just very like, we on on the king's birthday will celebrate his birthday and his cor- coronation, blah, blah, blah. And it's all the king's titles. It's just like... Which is so fucking Greek because Egyptians his... don't celebrate birthdays. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, well, it's really interesting that also it's it's such a, an important monument for discussions of ownership. And Egyptology is so interested in owning it. But only it's, in a non-academic way, only in a cultural, symbolic, yeah, imperial way. Yeah, it itself like, is like not that cool yeah, or that and, big of a deal, but it's just because it's the Rosetta Stone. Yeah, and you'd think also <laughs> like if we really cared about owning it so much, then we'd own the no. material that was within yeah. it and yeah. we just don't care. Ask any Egyptologist, what's in the Rosetta Stone? They're like, oh. It was the thing that they used to decipher glyphs. Yeah, but that's what's what like the content of a the decree. Rosetta Stone. It's a decree that is so legally boring yeah. that we actually can't figure out or explain in our elevator speech what the fuck is in it. Mm-hmm. We yeah. really don't know. It's yeah. all about the white man who deciphered the script that already existed in the Coptic language and never went away. Mm-hmm. So, But we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, so in, in some, erected in 196 BCE during the reign of Ptolemy V, a decree issued by the Council of Priests in Memphis to kind of commemorate the anniversary of the king's birthday and his coronation. Um, set up, presumably set up in multiple temples around the country, but this is the one that we would got. have been set mm-hmm. up in the north. We have a couple other iterations of it. Oh, okay. This is, um, they found later iterations. Um, but yes, best known for the fact that it was found later on during the French occupation and its life history after that is... Um, I think where it gains most of its. And for a European coming in colonizing Egypt, it doesn't take a rocket scientist, though they did not have them in mm-hmm. the early 1800s, to look at a document like this and be like, oh my God, there's hieroglyphs yes. and there's this other weird ass shit that I don't understand. They and that's Greek. It. That's mm-hmm. Greek. Yes, originally... I could use that Greek to understand this other stuff. And mm-hmm. so it was like a big yeah, Immediately bing. people realized the importance of it and they thought that Amotic was like some Aramaic script. Mm-hmm. They didn't realize what it was early on. Um, but yeah, there's a reason that the, the British insisted on taking it from oh, the French. I, yes, the whole yeah. story is, that's that whole story. So we can get into that, yeah. So who who found it? We can talk about how it was found. Um, well, you have, there's where, a battle yes. and there's a... Yeah, so do you know the story, Jonathan? I know, so if... I don't know the story of the Rosetta Stone itself, but I vaguely know the overview of Napoleon's campaign in Egypt where yes. he kind of brought these scholars to... Okay, so yeah, give us that first. Okay, so Napoleon... Because this ends at like the end of French occupation is when the Rosetta Stone is found. So. Yeah. You so... have to say savants. If you don't say savants, I'll be disappointed. Savants. But go ahead and say scholars. Fr- French fine. savants. Fine. No, uh, well, or you, French, you hear... French um, catalogers. Yes, yeah. but you hear Anglophone Egyptologists. The only savants. time we use the word savant <laughs> is when we're talking about <laughs> Napo- the description de l'Egypte in this moment. But anyway, please go on. Sure. Go on, go on. Um, I, love, I love a good savant. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do too, actually. Yeah. But uh, so anyway, so Napoleon goes to... I forget why Napoleon went to Egypt. I think it's kind of... Probably, just, I mean, I think Suez. Yeah, I think yeah, just yeah. to kind of fuck want, with... 
well, the European system. And, that, yeah. and I think it was all control of Suez, and who gets control these access to these trade routes into yeah. the Indian Ocean. And the beginnings is, of French colonialism mm-hmm. of Africa, yeah. Yeah. absolutely. But this is this is pre-empire phase, yes. I believe. Yeah. Um, so this is when he's still just like kind of an up-and-coming general, um, and goes and wins this spectacular battle of the pyramids, which is, you know, it, like it's amazing how little people the French lost. Um, and then this kind of leads to uh, the scientific, or quote-unquote Who did he win scientific. this battle against? I think Ottoman. the the Ottomans and the 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 it was the, the local Albanian population. slash Ottomans. yes yeah <laughs> it's so confusing um, yeah yeah so and then <laughs> yeah. so th- this then kind of opens the door for then these you know um, savants to come in <laughs> <laughs> and, and and these men who studied. Uh, they, they were studying antiquities. They were classicists. They were studying the flora and fauna. Yeah, yeah. they were architectural savants. Mm-hmm. Were, what else? What else? Just artists, I think. Yeah. Just plain artists. Yeah. Um, and they went and they would kind of draw the plant life, the wildlife, and also the monuments. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some yeah. cases, it was and, their mom looks. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, and then in some cases, actually, because some of the monuments have not fared well, um, that we still have. Re- we, we these were scientifically we should say maybe good drawings yeah. um mm-hmm. because they can tell us about monuments that no longer are extant um, because this is pre-industrial revolution and what happened in egypt during the industrial revolution is it became a source of lime and to create lime you need limestone and there are all these temples made of limestone the bedrock of egypt in yeah. egypt's north those are the ones that fared the worst and temple after temple seriously was fed into industrial lime kilns yeah. to make concrete and it so breaks our hearts yeah. and we're here with you to mourn but this is the way but it also was. like pre-antiquities trade where people were kind yeah. of going through these things looking for what was there in the 1800s yeah. was extensive and a lot more that's there now. And pre-initial dam. And so that's yeah. the that's the stone. But then also once the once the, again once the initial dam was built, and then all of a sudden they needed fertilizer, so they needed sebach. So then yeah. they start sebach, digging yeah. through the mud brick tells yeah. Um, yeah. because where else are they going to get it? Because yeah. the Nile's not doing its natural thing anymore. Right, right, right. Um, so then, yeah. So they have like essentially then all this kind of scientific work was going on, or again, quote unquote, scientific work you're, was yeah, going on. Yeah, remember that science is a tool yeah. of the yeah, patriarchy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah. put. <laughs> And given that, yeah. There are scientific components to it, but it's certainly a very gross oversimplification to just say that it's simply scientific and documentary. But it started this interest in antiquity. Yeah. And in Egyptomania. Yes, a resurgence of Egyptomania. But so then after this kind of initial victory at the Battle of the Pyramids, then the French lose a horrific... Or horrific naval battle where like essentially like th- yeah. like they can't get themselves home like it goes so badly for them they're, like their their fleet is just gone and I think kind of Napoleon like up and leaves like he's he able to leaves. get out he's yeah. like takes the last boat out of yeah him. exactly yeah. he's like okay he cuts his losses he's like what's it's his like... face Billy Zane in Titanic where he's like, <laughs> yes. oh yeah I'm a woman yeah. <laughs> yes so he's gone um, Billy Zane in Titanic that's the best analogy ever. I love that. Napoleon is Billy Zane. Yeah. Billy Zane, call us. We'll get you on the But don't. We kind of just insulted your character. <laughs> <laughs> no, his character. It's fine. And then yes. I forget the exact yeah. circumstances. And so this is but, kind of where we're at now. Yeah, but then, like, essentially that the British let the French leave, and they let especially the French, like, again, documentary team leave, um, but they exact payment for, for this departure. Yeah, so and, in 1799, Napoleon has left Egypt but has left some, his general there and some people because the British are coming to try to take Egypt. And so they, the British are coming, <laughs> Paul Revere, tell everyone. Um, and they're, they're set at an Ottoman fort 
um, and Borg Rashid at Rosetta, right outside of Alexandria, and they're garrisoning, ready, readying for the British battle. And one, Pierre-Francois Xavier Bouchard, that's captain of the Corps of Engineers, was in charge of these renovations. And he claims to have found a fine black granite piece with a very delicate grain and very hard to the touch in one of the fort's crumbling towers. So when they were renovating this Ottoman fort, they came across the Rosetta Stone in one of kind of the masonry of the wall. So I guess it was just used. I'm still obsessed in the with Ottoman. very hard to the touch because what did he think granite <laughs> well, yeah, diorite would feel like? like it's, <laughs> what the hell? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> right. not going to be mushy. And so our first iteration of the the first recognition of the stone is in september 15 1799 in the french newspaper of egypt they talk about finding the stone and has these scripts on it very interesting he had studied archaeology and knew the greek so he was able to read the greek and the last line that stated that the decree was written in these three scripts so instantly he knew this is important these other two scripts are copies of this greek one that i can read and so he sent this report to Cairo. You know, they copied some of the glyphs. Some of the Egyptologists at Cairo were interested in it. They did like a, a rubbing initially, right? I they, always feel dirty saying the word a rubbing. rubbing. Oh, obviously Jonathan does too, because I looked over a rubbing and there of the, he A was. rubbing of the stone that's hard <laughs> to the touch. <laughs> it's an awkward word to say. But all it means, dear listeners, is that you take a piece of paper and then you take some charcoal or something and you rub mm -hmm. over the whole stone mm -hmm. and you get an impression of what yeah. the text is that's on. Because it's incomplete also. Yes, right? it is. Yeah. It's a broken thing. You, broken. We can see the broken can, stone in our mind's yeah. eye. So at some point it was shipped south to Bulag down in Cairo. And Bulag, Bulak, you know. Yeah, yeah. Bu oh, yeah. It's the old Egyptian museum before the Tahrir yes. Museum. Yeah. And it went to the Ifau at some point too, the Institute of Egypt in, in Cairo. And it was there till the end of 1799. People were looking at it, right? At some point it gets then moved back up to Alexandria to another general. Um, so after Napoleon abandoned Egypt, the general in charge at the time, Manu, he's, how he's keeping it in his tent. Because he's like, I can see that this is very important. It's a big thing to keep in your tent. Yeah. And so once the French lose to the British, and the British, they come to a, you know, their treaty, and part of their treaty stipulates that are all the artifacts that were seized by the French during their occupation have to be then given over to the British. Um, and Manu lied about having the stone and said it was his personal property, and therefore doesn't need to be handed over to the British. Um, kind you, of like Alex Jones saying he doesn't have any money yes, because he's given his billions over to all of his friends and ex-wife and wife and all of these people. So he doesn't have to get deal, it, yes. yeah, deal with that. So they're trying to, you know, hide under these technicalities. You were going to say something. Oh, no, I was just going to say it's interesting that we're like, oh, my God, it's so ridiculous that he claims it as his personal property. But again, like people are just claiming this shit, yeah. this, this stuff yeah. all over the place. I mean, so. sure. Um, so then... The British, you know, they go back and forth and they're like, no, it's ours. And he's like, no, it's mine. It's my personal property. He's hiding it in this warehouse so they can't find it. The British eventually put this guy named Edward Daniel Clark in charge to secure the object. And he shows up with military support at the warehouse with like cannons and everything. And it's like, give us the stone. So again, this is like now this object is taking on even more power because it's now it's like this thing they're fighting over with these two countries. And these are the kinds of things that American Hollywood movies are based oh, on. Oh, they, like they would love American to make this into a movie. American treasure yeah. or something. You know, we have to get or like the, the thing one. That'll... What's the movie about like them Nazi? 
the the monuments men. Oh yeah, like, yeah recovering yeah. the artifacts. We're saving the things the of Western the civilization, yeah. so we can figure out where we come from. And so he rolls in. I mean, this is what we devote our lives to. But yes, it's fine. Yeah. Yes. He rolls in, seizes it, mm-hmm. and he says, "Quote: It's a proud trophy of the arms of the British. I could almost say spoiler spoiler optima." Not plundered from defenseless inhabitants, but honorably acquired by the fortune of war. From one warrior to another. Yes. Yes. Right. So they loaded onto a, sh- they loaded onto a French ship that they seized from the French, obviously, which so, was called so Raiders of the Lost which Ark. was called the Egyptian, the French ship. Okay. So it's even more funny. They do let the French keep the rubbings, though. They yes. let the French keep the which is kind of then part uh, of the copies that they made. Yeah. Issue. Yeah. So then it's a gentleman's agreement. A gentleman's bet. Who We're going to take will the translate stone. it first. Yes. We'll crack they it first. bring it to England. Um, it arrives in England. It's first sent to London Society of Antiquarians in 1802. Um, but by the time it got to England, it bore two new inscriptions on the sides. One saying, captured in Egypt by the British in 1801. And on the other side, presented by King George III. So now the British have stamped their, their inscriptions upon it. Later transferred to the British Museum in 1803, and that has been where it stayed until this day. And so now we can speak upon the so-called race uh, to decipher the hieroglyphs and how this also spurned on this nationalistic movement between the British and the French. Um, I felt it was very similar to like the space race between like us and Russia, but with this added flair of colonialism, Mm -hmm. which I mean, I guess we could argue was also there for the space race because we're going somewhere new. Um, but how do you guys see this? And what was the outcome of this of this race? Well, it hasn't been decided yet, has it? Uh, honestly. Okay, but for the for the race, just, you know, why was it important to be the first person to decipher, quote-unquote, hieroglyphs? Hmm. So I'll be the first person to admit that I find these questions <clears throat> incredibly uninteresting. Mm-hmm. And Me I'm not too. really sure why. Yeah, but people, like, think of the... The discussions we've had in this last year with both of these anniversaries coming up, and by both I mean the Part. decipherment of the Rosetta Stone and also the discovery of Tutankhamun's yeah, burial Yeah, but like how chamber. many exhibitions were recently about Champollion yeah. and the decipherment oh, so of the many, hieroglyphs? So and it's like, and you know, like so what's this pulling this at? discovery access point for the public seems to be where it's at. Mm-hmm. It may not be where we Egyptologists found our access point, but it certainly is for the public. So they want to know all about Howard Carter and how he did it. They want to know all about Champollion and how to he me, was like fainting as he's as mm-hmm. he's translating this shit. It recalls this idea of like great men. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. That a man in most cases. Singular but a man. singular person. Yeah. yeah. Most usually a male. Yeah. Usually a white male did this amazing like he personally like what was it like part of his like dna ingrained into him that he was able to like discover tut's tomb or decipher hieroglyphs or like conquer like alexander the great like conquered the world ignoring the fact that it's like part of these systems or part of this larger community or growth right like champollion didn't just like pull hieroglyphs out of his ass yeah. no we right? make like this he ex- knew coptic and like yeah and all these things you know we make it this ex nilo story yes that like he was out like of the culmination of out of nothing he does this and how many times have you you see that Champollion was a coptologist mm-hmm. but not really it's glossed over it's like the code cracking is the key yep. mm-hmm. but it's the cultural like he memory was a genius yes he, like, yeah. saw this, this genius like the the queen's like gambit or something, or something this yeah. chess yeah. kind of genius or sorry Leonardo searching for Bobby Fisher yeah Leonardo da Vinci mm-hmm. kind of thing but this cultural memory of Coptic 
in the church that Champollion is just dipping his feet into, yeah. that's what does it. That's what helps him to do it. And then you need a little code breaking to be able mm -hmm. to put a cartouche with a name yeah. Yeah. and you can do but it. But correct me if I'm wrong, earlier Arab and Coptic scholars were already making attempts at decoding the hieroglyphs mm -hmm. and making, you know, these, but like we in Western, our Western literature just kind of ignore all of that earlier stuff. And just jump right to Shemolia. Those Arabic yeah. texts are only now being yeah. translated into English for people to really use so that we can understand how deep the cultural memory really is. Yeah. There's mm -hmm. also a long, like, I think, alchemical yeah. tradition of, like, okay. deciphering hieroglyphs. But again, it's the... the Incorrect. The issue, the issue is, and, and here's the thing, because uh, if you think of the way that hieroglyphs function in, like, a Middle Egyptian class, like you look at the things that they're doing and be like, oh, like, of course they got it so wrong because they thought that these signs just represented ideas and not uh, letters or groups of sounds, mm -hmm. not phonetics. Um, but if you learn a bit more about Ptolemaic glyphs, and especially if you read Horopalo, Horopalo leaves out the phonetic component, but yes, there does kind of become this um, increasing, um, increasingly esoteric component to the Egyptian script and everything does, all the images can, can mean more things. They're playing with visual imagery mm -hmm. more. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's more understandable that, you know, people are looking at this being like, oh, well, these are just ideas. And what if we just talk about this idea that in Ptolemaic Egypt, the indigenous power base was a religious power base. Mm -hmm. And that religious power base, they jealously guarded their restricted knowledge. And to do so, they created a script that was full of double meanings, of, of difficult readings, of secret directional writings. I mean, it was it's a like it was the New York Times Sunday crossword. <laughs> oh, right. That, like, I don't, I never do crosswords. But it's like the hardest I give one. my finger to the crossword. Or like Wordle or something. It's like, you know, like people who can complete the Sunday Times. The New York Times Sunday crossword. Yeah. Like, there's all these little, like, the hints and... But it would be like if, like, not just the New York Times had a Sunday crossword, but, like, Philadelphia had a Sunday crossword. Yeah. And, you know, um, Providence had a Sunday yeah. crossword, too, and D.C. had a Sunday crossword. Because each of these writing systems are slightly different. Mm -hmm. yeah. So Edfu and Dendera are connected because they're cultically connected. Um, but, like, Esna, which is between Edfu and Dendera, it's so different. Wow. And, like, Philae, so I different. I didn't know that. They're all very, they're all distinctly different. I, you know that my knowledge stops with late period, and I and I can't read Ptolemaic hieroglyphs. I've never tried. Someday we're going to do this, I, Jonathan. I, be awesome. I did it with Jonathan. Yeah. Someday. I, I'll, I'll enjoy it. But, like, I remember all I the forms know. of Isis. Remember from that But one Esna's time? right there. Yeah. Why yeah. is it so different? So Esna's also a bit later than, um, than Dendera and Edfu, um, but it does seem that, like, each group of priests had their own system. Like, and they had their own... It as such. Exactly. It was, again, their secret knowledge. Mm. And not that, like, someone from Edfu could never, never, ever hold to read an Esna text, I'm sure they could, but like they would still need to be, to some degree, be uh, indoctrinated or be let into the secret knowledge of that local community mm -hmm. that they were going into. Very but cool. so this is our last attestation of hieroglyphic script in this Ptolemaic world. And as you say, this is preserved in Ahura Apollo, other um, hermeneutic mystery mm -hmm. texts mm -hmm. through the European Dark Ages and Renaissance, etc. And this is what these Enlightenment mm -hmm. classicist-based officers in the army are. That's what they know. Mm -hmm. And so when they see this, or when the savants, the, the mm -hmm. you know, these intellectuals see this, they're coming at it from this hyper-religious perspective, which makes hieroglyphs all symbolic and sense-based words. Mm -hmm. 
And so then we come to the the race, right? And yeah. Jordan, you'll probably tell us more that there's this confusion about whether or not things are phonetically representative yes. or symbolically mm-hmm. representative. Yeah. So, you know, a bunch of people are trying to translate it at this point. There's this race, but we end up getting two main front runners, right? Uh, Champollion and Thomas Young. The What's British. Champollion's full name? Jean-François. Jean 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 okay. he's, he's got something else in there. It's probably Philippe. You're probably I was right. going to say like, Philippe. <laughs> but, it, but it's okay. Don't yeah. worry. Don't worry. Um, Champollion and then Thomas Young yeah. from the British side. And obviously we have a lot of national glory linked to this race and stuff. And Young was actually the first one to figure out um, what cartouches held, mm-hmm. right? He was the first one to kind of figure out that the names are here and that most some of the script was ideographic. He had some knowledge in Chinese script, so he was able to kind of pull in some of the, these ideas. And he published his findings in 1819. So it's like an intellectual Olympics. Yes, exactly. If you like. yeah. Who's going to win? And the so gold? then Champollion taking the work of Young and this idea that okay, the names are in the cartouches, he was able to start translating out some of the names. I think he translated Ramses from Abu Simbel, mm-hmm. and he was able to figure out that it was this with his Coptic knowledge, this mix, the, the phonetic values of some of the signs. I and... think it's also so interesting that this is a race of rationalization. It's a ra- it's like. Look, no, the world can be understood from a rational European perspective, mm, yeah. and we're going to show it to you. Like that, that's, this is something. The world is something to be parsed yeah, out so by like, Europeans and made rational to be demystified and then consumed by Europe. Kind of yeah. taking the divinity out of the hieroglyphs themselves, mm-hmm. out of the medu nature, yeah. domesticating them, if you will, removing any sorts of secrets or or mysteries and just making them something that can be read. It's kind of a sad moment mm-hmm. in a sense. So I was going to say, like, why, I guess to your point, like, why was it such a big thing for us to have to be able to translate these scripts? I mean, it's still this way with, like, other scripts that still to this day remain untranslated, you know, linear B mm-hmm. or, right? No, Indus, linear, a, linear A. Linear A is untranslated. Um, like B the Indus Valley Greek. script things like this that are still technically untranslated. People are working on them. I think Elamite just got, they started cracking it. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. But so why is it such a human desire for us to be able to decipher them? And then on the second half, why were glyphs so hard? You know, why it wasn't until 18, 19, 1820? Too many assumptions about what they were, but go, go ahead. I have a really hard time answering this question because it's I, I have a response that's only contradictory and I recognize that it's contradictory. Why? why is it important that we read ancient scripts? Or yeah. why do we feel that it's yeah. important? Because I think everyone will agree like yes like we should we decipher these know things what they're and saying eat. Yeah. from their perspective from their emic perspective. But I think it's also our we prize and this is, can be within Egypt, Egyptology but in general right we prize linguistics scripts I think over archaeological right? It's one of the like key ways of getting this emic perspective that we always are trying yeah, to get at. Yeah, but we're imposing an edic ownership of yes. it. Yeah, so and our translation a... yes. is never, we're not in that culture. Yes. It, yeah, because it, again, it is imposing an edic ownership of it. Um, because again, even if you're translating it, even if you're reading their words, you're not a native speaker. And there Ancient are Egyptian. no And yeah. there are no native speakers, really. Like, yeah. you know... There, again, Coptic, sure, the Coptic community is, is the, there's a clear continuity between the language, but the traditions, the cultural and religious traditions are so, so different 
that there's really no native speaker that can emically explain these things to mm -hmm. you. And of course, even when you're, you know, again, from like, the, imagine like an anthropologist going embedding in community, there's still something lost in translation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, like, it's undeniable that it does provide just so much more information. Yeah, and think about, say, if glyphs weren't translated, how would our view of Egypt be today? We'd view it only through the classical yeah. lens. Yeah, we you would, know? because that's where the words are, which is what we do with ancient Persian. Like mm -hmm. It definitely because, opens up. Because ancient Iranian rulers kept so much of their own thoughts, ideas, uh, innovations, not in a written form. Mm -hmm. There are a few texts, but not enough. Um, there are administrative texts, there are some um, uh, monumental texts, but so much of the stories uh, and and um, personalities discussed and some of the emotional details given are in Greek. Mm -hmm. And you can't study ancient Iran without going through a Greek lens, which is hugely problematic. Yeah. yeah. Well, we would actually, do the same with Egypt, you're right. It's actually interesting that you brought up Iran because this is kind of the, the closest parallel, I think, to the Rosetta Stone is the, the decipherment of the cuneiform scripts through oh, Besitun. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very similar. Because people could read, I think it's the, people could read the Aramaic and yeah. then yeah. from yeah. there they read they used it the, backwards. the Old Persian and the Akkadian. And... Mm -hmm. Yeah, so then, I mean, to me, this, how does this then perpetuate colonialism, this object and its seizure? and this battle for ownership of it, and that it, Westerners were the ones who then deciphered glyphs and started this very Western tradition of Egyptology. I think it's two-pronged. One, as Jonathan was stating, it's this enlightenment interest in claiming the knowledge. But then number two, there's a Judeo-Christian aspect that's incredibly strong because you're going to the lands of the Bible and you're going to use it to then prove, oh my goodness, Abraham was here, or here's the land of the Exodus, here's Ramses or Pharaoh's army or whatever, and make all of these connections to prove your rather unenlightenment Judeo-Christianity correct, and, and thus keep that patriarchal stream of control alive. Mm -hmm. Whether nobody's thinking cynically in this way, mm -hmm. but it is part of what drives the earliest Egyptologists to get all of this material. Um, onto paper. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, well, and then we're seeing the ramifications of this in the modern debates mm -hmm. with its calls for repatriation back to Egypt, right? And I think many of us, maybe when we hear re repatriation, we might think within American context, you know, repatriation of indigenous artifacts to, to current um, tribal groups. But also maybe the, the quote-unquote Elgin marbles, Parthenon marbles, is mm -hmm. probably we should term them from now mm -hmm, on mm -hmm. um, and calls by Greece for returns of um, the Parthenon marbles and the British Museum's and England's refusal to do such. I know they're in talks right now, so we'll see maybe something's the English are happening, but <laughs> they are. a recent article from the British government was that even if they repealed that act, the British Museum Act of 1963, where they say they are not going to return any objects that they purchase, that the British government wouldn't allow them to leave. So I think nothing's going to be leaving England. And so um, the Rosetta Stone is part of this, this debate, ongoing debate amongst other Egyptian artifacts, including maybe most more famously the bust of Nefertiti, mm -hmm. but also like the Dendera Zodiac and the I, Louvre. I think we, we've, we need to hit on an important point, mm -hmm. which is that when the British and the French went to Egypt, <clears throat> 
when the British and the French went to Egypt, they felt that there was a lack of appreciation, indigenous appreciation for the antiquity that they Stewardship, were yeah. resuscitating, mm -hmm. right? Not just then, still to this day. Yeah, I, exactly. Oh, many yeah. would argue, Exactly. Yes. And so that, that lack of appreciation or the hard stop put in with an Arab occupation of Egypt and Northeast Africa and the, the inclusion and embrace of Arabic language and script as the, as the main means of communication in Egypt, that there was a disconnect, a hard disconnect between the antiquity of these indigenous people and even ideas that there was some sort of mass Arab invasion that replaced mm -hmm. the population, which of course has been proven by multiple genetic studies to be untrue. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to go there, but this idea that the white West can come in and value and own and steward, as you say, mm -hmm. something better than the native indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And yes, these ideas are still there, but this now, um, they couch them in slightly different terms, yeah. but the undercurrent is still like, we can take, we care, can take of care of them better. Of them better. Yeah. yeah. And like, we appreciate them more. Yeah. We don't appreciate them. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. So I think part of this within Egypt, I think part mm -hmm. of this debate is the issue of partage. Mm -hmm. And I think this is where people are like, well, was it legal when these objects were taken out? Taken out, And so what is partage? But this is pre-partage. Yes. These are spoils of war. Yes. This is, this is European invasion, occupation, and I found this shit and I just shipped it back home because I took control. Partage yeah. is going to happen later when you create the antiquity service under French control. Yeah. Um, and then you're going to have a partage. So then what's the, what's the, Zahi's argument or people who are pro repatriation of the Rosetta Stone for it to come back? Can I jump in? Because yeah. before we get here, I think we also kind of need to just call a spade a spade and to say like if Egyptology was truly like totally anti-colonial and like we would just really, you know, we want to undo all of these ownership issues that the West has had, just we should, honestly, every collection should be given back. Every, the entirety of every collection should be given back. But no one's prepared to do that. So mm -hmm. so what are Egypt we really... Egypt doesn't want that. I don't know. I don't claim... I don't know what Egypt wants and doesn't want. The, oh, the stewards of Egypt, at least the stewards of antiquity studies in Egypt now, have said, no, we don't want all no. of it back. Okay. They um, want these choice pieces that they feel represent, that are key markers of their cultural heritage. Yeah. And the word that's often used is iconic. Yes. And what does it mean mm -hmm. to be iconic? Well, it's something that represents... A certain moment or a certain aspect of Egyptianness in, in from antiquity, those like the Dendera ceiling, zodiac, bust of Nefertiti, bust of Nefertiti, the statue of Hamunu from Boston mm -hmm. is on this list. Ankhaf mm -hmm. too. Oh, Ankhaf too. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And that these things are, must be the ones that go back. Mm -hmm. um, but go back to, to your point. Yeah. So I, I basically. My question is because we're not really talking about what it, what is repatriation like what, like yeah. what are what are what are the mm -hmm. actual meanings of that that word and its yes. and associations because we're again we're not talking about a just unproblematically anti-colonialist standpoint yes. because again I think if it were we would just say okay like you want those iconic pieces back you know it's not up for us to define what's iconic and not like mm -hmm. sure take them. Yeah. Um, so and what's the word that's always applied by the European slash American 
in power when oh, they say, okay. oh, if we give these back, what's going to happen take next? Everything. Then you have this we'll notion empty. of the slippery slope. Mm. And, oh, you only want these things now. But as soon as we give these things back, then you're going to want everything. And then everyone's got their arms around their stuff and mm-hmm. and... And they're not going to give anything. Back. I hate slippery slope arguments. I know, so but much. that's what. But yeah. This no, you're is right. You're that. right. You're right. This is that slippery slope argument. Oh, we know you only want like ten things. We get it, but you're lying. Yeah. yeah. We we know you only Soon want gay marriage, but shirts. <laughs> you women, you want some feminism. We'll give you a little bit. You want your jobs, and soon you won't even have sex with us, or whatever it is. Yeah. 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 Okay, so what is repatriation? Sorry, I went hard feminist there. I'm, I apologize. But so like the idea of repatriation comes out of an American context. Patriarchal context, it's in the name. Yes. <laughs> because you're, yeah, it is. Of, Isn't that crazy? <laughs> of re-ownership, re- right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, indigenous objects, Native American objects, in, in a lot of cases, human remains, yeah. back to um, contemporary tribes that have a linked ancestry with these peoples. Yeah. Of, of the in museums or whatever right. and I think that's very different from perhaps what's going on or people could argue it's different from what's going on with ancient uh, ancient ancient objects because the linkage is something that can be debated right um, so for the Parthenon marbles yes and for the Rosetta Stone you could claim and these claims are being made we bought them fair and square yes here is our bill of sale we bought them from the people who were in control of Greece and or Egypt at the time Ottoman Empire here here is how we got them this is a fair sale there's nothing we need to do but and both... then the Egyptians will say but that land was stolen from us exactly. the Ottomans were and occupying same us with the Greece and yes it's exactly same with Greece right it was and times then, of occupation and you that can't the objects correct were taken. this and then it's a whole discussion but I mean same with it. indigenous remains I mean there wasn't a law against ransacking a tomb and taking a native body it was just recognized that that was wrong mm-hmm. and that these bodies should be returned yeah. and be able to be reburied and i think one of the key markers within the americas was that there's living descendants yeah and this idea of like a much closer time period between these things yeah but people will say well the modern egyptians aren't egyptian they're elite replacement or whatever or ottoman replacement or things like this or like replacements a thing you can't yeah you can't make this you can't make this ancestral debate when it's thousands of years in the past or something like this or and then, yeah, it was legally taken under partage or something else. And you get into all these legal arguments of just like what's morally. But then getting to your partage, because you yeah. brought it up multiple times. So partage is essentially once the European colonial powers establish their governance of, of Egypt, the British take control more or less of the government systems. and The French take control more or less of the intellectual systems and the antiquities service. Mm-hmm. And. It's not always that clean and there's overlaps, but we'll leave it there for now. So then you And to c- give Maspero some credit. Maspero, right? Or Mariette? Mari- Mariette who first and then the- Maspero. Mariette, okay, Mariette, yeah. some credit, even though he had a lot of problems, especially having looked at <laughs> stuff my, recently. My, yeah, yeah, my, my I was volume. like, what was he thinking? Yeah. But he had this idea that things should remain in Egypt yes. because yeah. so much stuff was leaving. Yes. And to give him some credit, he was like, no, some stuff should remain here. And this partage system is came out of this notion. He starts the museum. 
But say you're able to get some funding together. You've got, you know, 10,000 pounds, which could go very far in 1845 or whatever. And you bring in some excavators and an artist and whatever, and you start digging and you find fabulous things and you make your partage with the antiquity service. And it is a negotiation, kind of like when I went through a divorce yeah. and you're like, mm-hmm. I get this stuff. It's like the will. That yeah. stuff. Yes. Yeah. And you're like, okay, we're going to take this to the Louvre and we're going to leave this here. And you even get like the tomb of Mecket Ray, Middle Kingdom tomb, where you're going to take half of the things and put them in the Met. Half of the things will it's stay very in much Egypt. when there's like duplicates. They're yes. like the, the pairs are split off. The most famous example of this is probably the bust of Nefertiti. Because mm. when yes. Borchard excavated, so when Borchard was excavating in Amarna and they found essentially two busts, they found the, the, beautiful bust that's in Berlin and they found an equally beautiful bust but not as elaborate not as kind of yeah yeah, not as um what's the word I'm looking for not as um aesthetically remarkable in a western sense a little mustache on it it's that limestone one yeah a little oh yeah little squiggle above Uh the the, the but it's funny because to the Egyptians the plaster one was just like the ugly model well it was also in pieces yeah. It yeah. hadn't been fully reconstructed. I, I think that Borchardt knew what he had. Yeah. But he's like, oh, and then there's this shit in the box. Exactly. So he, and he, was like, he was like, you could have, little... you could have like the nice one that's intact, or you could have like the sh- bad this bad one, one that's like broken and there's like dirt he in downplayed here. It. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And then through Make the partage, through the partage system, the inspector it was kind of like, okay, then we'll take, yeah, yeah we'll take the one that that's still in Cairo today. Yeah. And then the Germans got home and they were like, look what we have, <laughs> and the Egyptians were immediately. Like, and by when you say Egyptians, I, you mean the French in control of yeah, the yeah, yeah. service. Yeah. So when you're talking about the bust of Nefertiti, and there was just an exhibition on this, I think it's like six, seven years old, this exhibition, which is a hyper pro-German propaganda campaign, in my opinion, run by the Egyptian Museum. This is now on a podcast. I'm super excited that that's out there in the world. <laughs> but anyway, but th- this is still an inter-European discussion because there are many... Europeans, Americans, whatever, white people who are scholars who think that the way the Germans did this was not straightforward yeah. and direct. And then it's, and as we saw with the Rosetta Stone, it becomes like these discussions of honor, my sir. Exactly. And we are that. going to do it this way, my sir. And it's all this, this um, stupid warrior mentality mm-hmm. of what's right and wrong, a binary sort of morality. But yeah. anyway. Yes. So, okay, so going back to this debate, right? So the debate, I think, headed forefronted by Zahi Mm -hmm. in in most cases. Um, He argues that, you know, that these items are unique and iconic and their home should be in Egypt and that they have evidence in his his perspective that proves that they were stolen and they should be repatriated to Egypt. But the British Museum counters and says, or... Berlin Museum, but the BM has, a, I think, a more has law to back it up where they have an act from 1963 that says, you know, any objects that enter into uh, British holdings are allowed to be sold as a way of keeping... Are not allowed to be sold. Are not allowed to be sold. Like keeping cultural heritage in museums open to the public, right? They can't disappear into private settings or things like that. This is an important point to stop on because the European will say your European facing person, white person will say, we are going to take better care of them Mm -hmm. because we are going to put them in institutions, i.e. museums, that will allow them to be consumed visually, educationally, by a broader public than yes. you, North African or Egyptian or Greek or whoever, more people are coming here to do. Mm -hmm. But this is the whole bullshit like world museum argument. 
that like we're a world museum like we don't own it like the world does and then we're like why is egypt why is egypt building the Not, gem these days I, I can't imagine why yeah and why are they spending so much money on this i can't imagine why and it's then like, or <laughs> same with same with athens i was just recently yeah. in athens and the parthenon it's a beautiful museum the parthenon museum yeah. is gorgeous yeah and it's like the way they have it set up you know it's like you can see the parthenon from the museum and it's exactly like same orientation and all this stuff and they have all these plaster casts that they have of the marbles and stuff and it's like why aren't they here yeah you know it's just absurd and but now it's become such like a the whole argument has become so politicized it's not even actually about so much about the objects anymore it's like britain doesn't want to like thinks they'll like lose face or like oh then everyone will take everything back type of argument i think comes into play like oh we can't give anything back because otherwise everyone's going to start asking for stuff and it's it's so funny because i will say that again assuming the fact that we're not just or that western countries or western collections are not just kind of uncharacteristically or like um without without any reservations willing to kind of give these things back if that's not the case, I find kind of very little arguments that are made on either side to be ethically defensible. Um, I think they're more kind of, they're more just well, it's, negotiations it's and they're more political negotiations, yeah. but we then try to kind of map these ethics and moralities onto them. And I'm not really sure you, again, if, if you're not doing the ethical thing, then I'm not really sure we can. And, and I think people get into these really raucous and really kind of passionate mm -hmm. debates and i'm just kind of like I, I don't really get the point because Do you know the argument that i think works best hmm. it's the argument that these objects are safer yeah, yeah. in western slash american control and here's where it gets hyper racist without even saying it directly there is the the notion that whenever you read something about the middle east in the same way with black america whenever you read about black people in the united states what is presented in the newspapers and the media is very often about violence yes. discord mm -hmm. harm um anti-feminist whatever and that these objects will somehow be safer in our moral holding mm -hmm. rather than in the middle east where gods help us we get Syrian wars, we get the Islamic um, State, the Islamic yeah, State the crushing idea. things with with jackhammers. We get authoritarian leadership. We get oil um, uh, authoritarian regimes in the Putting in West Asia. Leonardo's in their yacht. Yeah, and and then we have these very difficult <laughs> discussions about the that war harms things, which we know war does. War yeah. takes spoils of wars. That's where the Rosetta Stone came mm -hmm. from. And then we'll Spo say... Spoiler Optima, was that? Yes. Spoiler Optima. And then we will say to ourselves, oh, no, no, we have been through our wars. You... I'd say, how many objects were destroyed in World War II? And I can talk about that, but and I'll get there in a second. But, like, we've been through our wars. We have found our reckoning. We rose above it. Yes. Yeah. You are still going through your barbarian phase, mm -hmm. you people, and thus we should keep them. And as Jordan has just intimated... I can't tell you what, you know, I would, I went to Berlin and I'm like, I'm looking That's at so these objects <laughs> and I go to try to see the coffins, uh, a coffin of Ta, what's her name? Ta, many, many, you, Ta, many, you, I think from the tomb of Senegem. And I show up and they're like, oh, that's Kriegsverlust. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> it's gone. It's done. And there's a whole bunch of things from Berlin 
that are Kriegsverlos. And then I would go to Britain and I'm like, I want to see this coffin. They're like, well, here it is. I'm like, holy shit. It's like been blown up. They're like, indeed, it, it was. was blown up. <laughs> and we've done this and that to try to, but this whole museum was on fire. I'm like, oh my God. And we have been able to say for the last 50, 70 years, war will not come to Europe again. And I think if Russia invading Ukraine is teaching us anything, and we see people now starting to take sides, mm-hmm. and Hungary's going to be here, and Poland's over there, whatever's going to happen, I think this idea that war will not come to Europe is bullshit. But also, it's not even, we don't have to even go like to the extremes of war. For example, yeah. when we went to Cairo to look at coffins yeah. for your coffins project, you stated. Oh, coffins. You true. liked Cairo yeah. and, and the Egyptian museums better because yeah. the coffins were kept in their original state and weren't repainted or like well, all this like plastic attached to them and like reglazed and like conserved in a really terrible way. I have an old adage, which is the more Protestant a country is, <laughs> the worse, the less antiquity a coffin has. So if I go to Brussels or I go to Leiden, those coffins are fucking repainted there's like you can't yeah, so find the antiquity who's, who's stewarding antiquity when you're yeah. like yeah. Ru- you're ruining, ruining the piece. it well you're we're repainting. not they're not ruining it they're making it better <laughs> they're improving it but so, that's all part of the yeah. discussion if you have the hubris and the privilege to think that you're repainting something is going to make the antiquity better then of course you're going to keep all of these things in european museums yeah. and yeah. think that you're the only one who can steward it properly and that all of those indigenous people can't have it we we should also stress though that like conservation practices in current yes, museums are change. not doing this anymore. They like you know they're they're time. they're uh, res, res, restore or not restoring. They're conserving, but they're not restoring. restoring. I would say some alarming European conservation practices are moving into Egypt in ways yeah. that I find Egypt's, highly destructive because they're way. Europeanizing. Mm-hmm. Colonialism is never done with you. It's yeah. always there messing with you and churning you yeah. out and making you see where the dominant culture is so that you move towards it to get more power. Yeah. And I now see as the mm-hmm. gem is being built, as Nemec is being built, with wood panel painting, which I know the best, I'm seeing a whole shit ton of very bad yeah. conservation. Yeah. But prior to this... Restoration, one might yeah. call it instead. Whatever you want mm-hmm. to call it, yeah. And so also recently, with this 200-year anniversary of the decipherment, there was a petition that was signed by 2,500 archaeologists to the BM to return the Rosetta Stone. And so what do you think, because I think in most cases, academics tend to kind of stay, we're staying out of, you know, people write an article here or there, but for most cases, it was kind of a country-to-country nationalistic, like, debate. But now we're having you know, thousands of archaeologists getting involved and voicing their opinion in this way. You're putting us on the spot to say what we think? Not so, not so what you think. I don't think, mind. I'm down with it. I, but you go not, ahead not and what, do it. I mean, you can share if you want. But my point is, like, us getting more involved instead of, you know, letting the governments deal with it. You know, it would be like, the British to the Egyptian government. And to, to make that case, and what Britain says, is that Egypt has never actually, like, formally requested it back. It's just like someone writing an op-ed... Zahi saying something, well, but like the Egyptian government has never like actually like submitted a formal claim to say, can we have it back? Why do you, why do you think? Because they're going to say no. Yeah, because they're going to say no, <laughs> it's going to create an incident. Yeah. So we'll just avoid the incident. Right. Yeah. And I think the tide has shifted a bit, right? With the Benin bronzes, like things are being repatriated um, more. Yeah. And so I think a tide has shifted within academia too, yeah. that I think a lot more of us support it. 
um, things going back, especially taken under very dubious circumstances. Obviously, she should go back. Okay, I'm going to jump in and say, number one, I think the Rosetta Stone can and should go back. However, I think the value of the Rosetta Stone is European imposed. It's only As we were just valuable. Saying, like, it's actually like a really boring steel. <laughs> it really is. It doesn't fucking matter. It's only there's important way cooler steel because a bunch of white Pyro people has. were racing each other to get to the translation, and thus it has value. Mm-hmm. So yes, okay, fine, it can go back. In many ways, it's a European pissing contest more than anything else. But because it's from Egypt and so iconic, that's why it is wanted. So if I were an Egyptian, which I am not. I would, and I'm saying, I mean, this, I, I would ask, why do you like want it's that? Not, I yeah. feel like it's not I'd my place. I'd go more for Nefertiti. Yeah. I'd go more for Hemunu and the those guys. Zodiac. Zodiac. Stone, let him I'd go for the Zodiac. It. Go for Zodiac. That shit was that ripped out. That should be back there. How, or the columns from the Seti, the first tomb. Mm-hmm. Give me a break. Mm-hmm. That yeah. shit should go back. Rosetta Stone, let the Europeans I'm have very their much stupid like, steel. Yeah, it's not my Don't place. Don't care. Don't care. Interesting. That word iconic is kind of interesting in it this is. regard because of course like an icon which is where it comes from is like a you know a religious yes. to be yeah, worshipped right. mm-hmm. has power mm-hmm. from yeah. its own side yeah has well, agency me, over us mm-hmm. which of course these things do mm-hmm. they they absolutely I mean, obviously do. they're and i think this gets to your other this gets to your point right these objects are merely pawns in mm-hmm. these games of like nationalism and and you know, and who gets to claim them and use them in this There's way? There's nothing objective about them. Yes. It's all about and the so meaning that has either been the imposed upon them use and them that has, still contains. Or Egypt's going to use it yeah. for for its purposes. Yeah. So it's what Kara, because I would agree. I think we have entirely the same perspective. I would say, like, really, like, if if you're asking yeah, me whether I think it should cooler, go back, so. like, I honestly, like, I have no horse in this race. Yeah. Like, yeah. obviously, it should go back, but yeah. like, I'm not a European. I'm not involved in that pissing contest. I'm not an Egyptian. Like. It's not part of my heritage. Like, yeah. so I really have like very, very, very not really strong feelings about Same. it because of it. But like objectively, like, I think it should. Yeah, it should go back because they're asking for it back. Yeah. But again, like, again, it's it was just... made there. It comes from there. Yeah. But it's also made under a, a colonial occupation yeah, of its that's own. Fair. Yeah. The you know, and not even the first, arguably, but it was like probably, a bad Ptolemy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that Ptolemy op- occupation. Was a was a kid. I guess it was after the revolt was done. But they let that occupation left some deep scars of its own. Well, right? they, they, that, so there was that uh, the Ptolemaic occupation. Well, the Ptolemy the Ptolemaic occupation, I would say starts to leave scars and then just they fester and fester and then the romans get there and they just pour salt in the wood and i just heard of a volume that i'll leave unspoken for now about how a a couple of scholars stated that that the ptolemaic regime was an occupation by europe and that that was considered so unsavory that they were disincluded from the volume yes this shit is real and it's alive. Interesting. Crazy, right? You can't use the word occupation. You're like, we think this is too much. It's like, well, what do you want to call it? They're not from Egypt. Can you, can you gloss over it for us, please? Can you just make us not have to think about this thing? Yeah. <laughs> don't, yeah. Don't make us question ourselves. Let us retain our innocence. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so to kind of take us back out in a, in a way of conclusion, right? Mm-hmm. There's all these books that have come out, I think, somewhat recently, somewhat past like two decades maybe but more recently we have the, like the brutish museum mm-hmm. book about the british museums collecting um policies right we have who owns antiquity jim cuno formerly of the getty about these these 
debates about museums, collecting. Chasing Aphrodite. Chasing Aphrodite. So I guess if our listeners are interested, I mean, I think our opinions are clear. But And complicated. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not, not an easy. easy debate. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in a broader sense, where should, where, where should we, how do we see these things going? Um, where do we think this is, you know, going in the future? Do we think it's going to get more yeah. violent or more like further calls? As this whole globe dives into nationalism and authoritarianism, which I think we're all doing wherever we are this will get hotter. Mm -hmm. And it's not like we're all going to join hands and sing Kumbaya. I think there's going to be more vociferous discussion and, as you say, maybe even violence about these kinds of things. Well, or I mean, speaking to the, so like, you know, so England's, Britain's not getting back the Rosetta Stone, so we're not going to give any um, excavation permits to the British then. Like these type of like tit for tat type of That's already happening. Which is already happening because of other things that have happened. Mm -hmm. But like I also don't blame Egypt for doing that, right? Like if we have control over this and you guys are being assholes. You use the power available to you as a nation. Like I get it. You know? So I I think it's gonna get harder. I think my question is how long is this kind of this framing of the debate sustainable? Like how long before we're like, you know, not worrying so much about where the Rosetta Stone is, but versus like where the clean water is and oh, yes. kind of things like that. Things that actually so, matter. Where the yeah. clean air is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and like part of the British Museum's whole argument too is with like technology these days and, you know, like you can have the really good 3D scan and the 3D model and like it's nice online. And it's like, well, like, why can't you have it? And you can give them the, <laughs> like what's real then in these arguments of Authenticity real and, is a very important you know, point. Yeah. But there comes the icon. There comes the object having agency over us yep. and we wanting to have the real one or nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And it's funny because I actually, I think a great solution to all these problems would be just 3D print Rosetta Stones yeah. for every, every museum just, in the world. On, just like the decree was yeah. in, in its original purpose was that this decree was written how many times and sent all to temples throughout Egypt mm-hmm. and set up. Yeah. That was, it was, it's like, this is a copy of, Probably something that was written on of papyrus, a boring right? motherfucking text. Yeah, of like we're gonna have this thing, and the king's not gonna tax us or something or whatever. Like, yeah, okay, but yeah. yeah, and it's funny how this text or the Nefertiti bust or the Hemiunu statue or whatever. These are all people who had extraordinary influence and power who were creating their own propagandas and ideologies of why their power was necessary and now what is it that we in our power hungry form want to own and consume and lord over others that we have but these images of power that they still work on us it's all about the essence of materialism no one's like like, oh my god i want that that you know shitty piece of shirt. handmade linen or some yeah. yeah some crappy shirt made by a potter in a village somewhere mm-hmm. that i mean where you can still see the fingerprints it, like, I, again like like think about like the means that you can actually connect with humanity quite yeah. clearly these are not really that's valuable. not what we want yeah that's not what well, so we I'll, want. I'll ask my last question what do you think the ancient egyptians would think of these debates depends on the egyptian you're like asking. okay so what would nefertiti think of us Debating about where this limestone. Nefertiti 
as she's in fully gaslit mode by Akhenaten or Nefertiti post gaslighting? <laughs> However you want to do it. I think it's the same answer. I think it's not my family. Then someone after me made a terrible mistake and I don't care about it because yeah. it should still be my family. And if it's not my family's monument, then fuck all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, Nefertiti was trying Stila to clean up patriarchal messes towards the end. So maybe she tries to create some sort of truth and healing reconciliation yeah. program. But, but they wouldn't have put as much value on these objects probably as mm. we are. Hard to say. I think if they were, certainly there's there's evidence that if they were, if it was not a Rosetta Stone, but it was an image of Amun, yes. say, then this yes, would be yes, a yes. very different conversation for an ancient Egyptian. But the fact that it's just a decree, mm-hmm. um, probably it still would have importance to them. Because again, these decrees weren't like set up at the public square. Yeah. So like people could come by and just like, you know, it's like Freedom. people think the hood of Hammurabi was like, a law code that you could just like mm-hmm. go and check out and it was like installed in a public place that you could go read and be like what are the laws this week not the case at all these are all restricted monuments that are in restricted spaces that a lot of people can't access and yeah. the audience is the elite and the gods yeah. i mean if i'm telling me the eighth and this decree is not so important anymore and it's reached its limit in time i'm going to look at that and say or if i'm one of his lieutenants or or minders i would look at that and say that's a nice big chunk of granite <laughs> yeah, diorite right, say, right hey. there i'm going to take well, that I mean, nice I, big obviously chunk. someone at some point was like that's a really nice Stone. Yeah, I'm gonna put it in this fort. Well, and I'm right? gonna like, I'm gonna scrape that shit down, and I'm gonna put my own new text on there. I'm gonna make it useful for me, and that's what an yeah, so maybe Egyptian it's, would do. Its yeah. value is in its actual materiality, yeah. not in like the how we look at it. And its value being in oh, it has these three scripts that held a help. And us mind you, it's but that it's nice piece of granite. To note that we don't know whether this stone was reused from something else. Yeah. Yeah. The Ptolemies were not known for their quarrying activities of of hard stone and numbers that reach the Amenhotep III or Ramses II level. So it's completely possible that they're pulling that stone out and that kind of reuse is is going to take away whatever images of the antiquity before it were. So it's completely possible that it's reused and you can't carbon date that shit. So it's not going to help you. But um, Mm -hmm. yeah, you're looking for the pragmatic expediency of the moment for your monumentality. Mm -hmm. That's what... That's what these things are, and that's why we still want these particular objects because they help the nation state, or they help they help the nation state in every way. Yeah. They help Britain, they help Egypt, they because help Greece, whatever it is. Concrete reminders, right? Yeah. Like humans were bad with abstracts, so we have this like concrete yeah. object mm-hmm. that we can focus upon. And the debates about where the stone should be, but it's not really actually a debate about the Rosetta Stone. It's these larger. Top. And also looking at the stone itself as a as a verb, not a static object. Mm-hmm. It's you know this this thing does things. Yes. It doesn't yeah. just sit there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So let's go to British people and just go inter- you know interview and say what is on the Rosetta Stone. I would say eighty seven percent of people would have no idea. They probably get the languages. M- many would probably yes, get the languages and the translation, and they would tell the European facing story of oh, the. Yeah domestication of a language that had been mysterious before. Mm-hmm. And that would be there. But otherwise, what's actually in there, mm-hmm. written into the text, most of us are not going to know. Yeah. Yep. Well, that was a great conversation, guys. Yes. Yeah. It was, Thank it, you. Yeah, so I guess give it back, but who cares? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of, I guess that, yeah, no, that's, that's actively it. summarizing that's my That's why my I am a lot about yeah. a lot of these things. I'm like, just, yeah, like I don't really care where it is. Yeah. And I'm just... I fall on the moral side that, like, of the modern inhabitants of that place, I think have slightly more ownership 
And the over more our, all of our eyes are open to the... And there's the, so much other shit in the British Museum. Like, come on. Like, you can... Well, and there's just so much more shit, Jordan. Yeah. Overall. Everywhere. Yeah. There's yeah. just so much shit. And the more like, eyes no are open to... like, museums are, like, lacking of objects. Like, museums let's... are mouthpieces of patriarchal systems yeah. to make themselves seem innocent. And it's bullshit. And museums are as political as anything else. And that needs to be stated up front. Mm -hmm. So when museums try to cleanse themselves by saying, we're making things open to the public, bullshit. You're making things open to some of the public, a part of the public, an educated public, the ruling public. But this is all still part of the patriarchal game that I'm really kind of done with. Mm -hmm. So, you know, give them back, I guess, but I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, because they're still pawns of some patriarchal nationalistic regime. I'm going to go with Melania Trump. I don't really care care. to you. Mm -hmm. But... Get your jacket. Up. You know what about the clean water, clean air? I'm going with yeah. that. But <laughs> I mean, that's more important, actually. Yeah. yeah. To close, maybe we could just think a little bit about the etymology of the word museum and how oh. it comes from, like, oh my god, Jonathan, Museon. This and is like, why we have you yeah. on right now. I love Bring it. it. Please go. I like, like, because this is named after the Museon in Alexandria, which is named after the Muses, where it's like yes. you know a repository for, again, the Muses that were inspirational things. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't really know what my conclusions are here, but it's it certainly does seem relevant, and especially as we ended with kind of a reflection on what museums are and mm-hmm. what they do in general. We should think about that too, and also realize that this comes this word comes out of Egypt. Yeah, it comes, but from Greek. Yeah, from Greek, but from an occupied Egypt. Yeah, mm-hmm. where you well, take I, these things and you put them into a different space. Of... I think a lot of museums are at this reckoning point now with questioning what is our purpose, mm-hmm. right? No longer the, oh, like, people just come here to look at pretty things. I don't think really works anymore, right? There has to be some type of, like, stronger mission of, like, you know, making um, a political statement or political justice statements, things like this, that they're, like, doing something with their pieces. Because I think we've all come around to, like, just having objects to have them to put on show. And yet what have we learned? Because we all know that the Getty Museum... And CUNA was at the lead of this decision to deep six their entire brilliant educational force that brought buses in from across the city of Los Angeles to educate those who wouldn't go into a museum otherwise because they're not part of the ruling class. And why did he deep six that education program that Amber was a part of, but to acquire more shit? And it was explicitly stated it was to to enlarge their acquisitions budget. Well, this goes back to our, I think, our overarching message among a bunch of our episodes is the idea of this exponential growth and capitalistic growth that we are hoarding hoarding and that we as a society have to put the stops to and we're not dragons yes (laughs) exactly we're not kings we're not dragons and so i think a lot of museums and i can speak to the getty that they are changing a lot of policies about growth and ideas about growth and all these things um so i think within the next couple decades, I think we'll see the landscape of museums changing a lot and with these repatriation arguments as well. Yeah. Super fun. Super fun. Well, I hope you all enjoyed listening to us. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, thanks for stopping by. It's It's always good. Uh, This is... After Lives of Ancient Egypt, baby. Bye. Thank you to our listeners for your support, and please subscribe. It's a big deal with all the platforms, so subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends, and most importantly, leave us a five-star review. It really helps with all those aforementioned platforms. 
Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. We read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Join our vibrant and subversive online community at patreon.com slash afterlives and get access to our private Discord server where Jordan and I can connect with our listeners far, far away from all those toxic social media spaces. And do not forget to check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com where we share perspectives on all that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. You can find me on Facebook at Kara Cooney Egyptologist and on Twitter and Instagram at Kara Cooney. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.